0: Welcome to the AUA's Understanding the Evidence, New Technologies for Treating BPH and LUTS. And here is where I will turn over to uh, Dr. Peter Gilling, who is our course director. Thank you very much.
1: Well, well, welcome all to Understanding the Evidence for new technologies for LUTs and BPH. My disclosures, uh, as you see here, I'm a consultant and an investigator for Procept and uh, Zenflow. So I'd like to introduce my course faculty, uh, Michael Borofsky from Minneapolis, Dean Altman from Toronto, and Henry Wu, who's uh, six, six, seven o'clock in the morning, I think in Sydney, I think Henry. Uh, yeah, I'm coming to you at nine o'clock in the morning from uh, New Zealand so uh, it's a truly a uh, multi-international faculty now these the techniques that we're going to discuss and base them around the pivotal trials are the ones that we see here and they're all endorsed by uh, the aua and their new bph guidelines uh, i'll talk about aqualation. Uh, henry will talk about uh, prostatic urethral lift dean will talk about the water vapor thermal therapy or resume and Michael will talk about the new text techniques for uh, enucleation of the prostate. The EAU guidelines uh, don't yet recognize aquablation and resume, but as we can see here, the prostatic urethral lift and enucleation are, uh, uh, are recommended for certain categories of patients, and they still regard these various devices, and I'll talk about the eye as well, and, and uh, stents, and uh, Dean will talk about uh, pros- uh, the uh, uh, ethanol uh, the ablation of the prostate as well, and, and, and when we explore some of the new technologies. I'll, I'd just like to say a few brief words about pivotal trials in general. Uh, pivotal trials—it's a bit of a buzzword, but essentially, it's the best evidence that. Uh, um, the FDA has to make uh, objective measurements uh, in terms of marketing approval. And it really is an FDA construct. It's used a lot and synonymously with randomised controlled trials, but there are different rules around pivotal trials and particularly in the BPH space. The FDA obviously deals with a range of different devices, including diagnostic and aesthetic devices, but of course we're uh, interested in therapeutic devices, devices that are intended to to treat, in in our case, uh, BPH and LUTs. So pivotal trials are designed to collect the primary evidence of safety and effectiveness to support a marketing and submission application. And a properly designed pivotal trial uh, minimizes error and bias and facilitates the objective assessment of an investigational device. We'll hear about the best of these for each of the technologies uh, that we're going to discuss today. There are several stages uh, in medical device clinical studies um, as recognised by the FDA, obviously the exploratory phase, which we'll talk about very briefly, the pivotal stage, which we'll focus on and the post-market stage, which Helps us understand better the long-term effectiveness and safety the exploratory stage is important in many uh, respects and it sometimes uh, involves uh, animal uh, studies as well and it helps the uh, technologies and the companies developing them to refine their techniques and come with a, a product which is ready for market and then that's typically the one that's uh, that they engage in the Pivotal trial. The Pivotal trial, obviously, it's a bit of horse trading. It has to be done with, in conjunction with the FDA as these things are designed to meet the specific purpose. And there is a little bit of give and take on both sides, as we'll see shortly. Because devices aren't the same as drugs. You know, you do have the complexity of the device. There's aspects uh, of biocompatibility and or corrosion. There's uh, human factor, uh, considerations whether or not the uh, operator can repeat the, the same uh, procedure over and over again. Learning curve, obviously, is a factor, and, and I'm sure Michael will talk about that in relation to a nucleation uh, The user skill level and training that's required, uh, and that needs to be carefully documented and, and tested as well. So medical devices are definitely different to drugs in this regard. And there's a range of different uh, uh, principles for designing these clinical studies. We won't talk so much about the protocol itself and the study objectives, site selection, s- uh, subject selection, stratification and so forth. I'll talk a little bit about bias and variance and uh, the comparative study designs and then we'll get into the task at hand. So bias, remember, is a systematic error, non-random, in the estimate of a treatment effect. And one of the main objectives of a clinical study is to eliminate, reduce, and estimate that bias. Variance is dealt with by a more efficient study design and larger sample size primarily. We know the different types of bias which we currently commonly see. Selection bias, of course, and investigator bias. Both of these are mitigated by randomization and blinding primarily evaluated bias in the post-operative period, Uh, blinding is important here again, and the use of objective uh, rather than subjective measures. And we'll talk a bit about the placebo or sham effect. And then of course, the statistical analysis plan has to take into account uh, strategies for dealing with missing data because that introduces a further bias. Comparative uh, study designs Uh, are usually uh, straightforward with BPH devices. They're usually parallel studies. But if a sham treatment has been used, then it's important to do either a paired or a crossover uh, technique to get these things through ethics approval so that all patients have the opportunity to have uh, active treatment at some stage in the course of of their treatment. So the gold standard, of course, for BPH and LUT studies is the uh, double-blind randomized, controlled, and importantly, multi-center clinical trial. Uh, Multi-centricity, of course, is important in terms of generalizability of the technique to different populations and is quite important from the FDA's point of view. We'll talk a little bit about controls, but essentially for BPH uh, treatments, uh, the placebo or sham effect is the predominant one that we'll hear today, certainly from the prostatic urethral lift and resume. Active treatments uh, such as TURP are more common for those techniques which remove tissue, and I'll talk about that in relation to aquablation, and we'll talk about that, uh, Michael will talk about that in relation to uh, enucleation. Uh, Having a control of no treatment or uh, a concurrent control or historical control is not really relevant. In uh, BPH studies, but mentioned here for completeness. So placebo controls are often quite difficult to, to design, as uh, many of you know, and um, obviously it's uh, much easier for for medical uh, trials using placebo pills. But um, the placebo effect is enhanced with devices and prolonged uh, with devices. So it's a very important. Uh, Effect and we know the various sources of the placebo effect or the sham effect, the expectation of benefit, uh, regression to the mean, and uh, the so-called Hawthorne effect, um, which is the white coat effect, showering of medical attention and so forth. But as a, as, I, as I said, the sham effect can be quite long lasting, so it does need to be taken into account. The control of no treatment is not relevant in uh, BPH and. Uh, a non-concurrent control group which is uh, which is well matched takes into account observed measures but doesn't uh, account for unobserved measures which the investigators are often unaware of so randomization balances for these just as it does for historical controls but these are never acceptable to the FDA for pivotal trials in the space that we're dealing with today and once we've done all this the protocol is then um, completed, there has to be rigorous scientific rationale, uh, proposed intended use and details around the device itself, strict definition of the study populations and study endpoints, a robust statistical analysis plan. and. Uh, um, but we'll see as we move through the different treatments that essentially the, 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 the um, pivotal trials for BPH all seem to follow the same sort of uh, process. And so I'd like now to uh, uh, turn over to Dean to start, and he'll present the Pivotal Trial for Resume and uh, prosthetic Artery uh, Embolization. Dean.
0: Thank you very much uh, for the uh, introduction. And and it is a great pleasure and honor to share the uh, faculty uh, at this AUA course. And thank you for the AUA for providing this virtual experience to all of the members. So I've been tasked with reviewing the pivotal study uh, for Resume, as well as touching upon uh, prostate artery embolization. Sorry, so these are my uh, disclosures. Uh, I'm gonna go back here. Very good, I'm at the University of Toronto. These are available online. So, Let's start with Resume. This is convective water vapor technology. And this is important just in terms of a brief backgrounder. It's unique in three ways. Number one, it's the heat source. This is uh, steam, it's water heated to 103 degrees. Uh, It's heat transfer, in other words, it's the way that the heat travels through the tissue. Um, And in this case, it's convection as opposed to conduction, which really allows for even heating of all of the tissue within the zone of the prostate anatomy that the treatment is being applied. And lastly, lastly is the containment within the prostatic anatomy in that this convectively delivered water vapor stays within the pseudocapsule, which divides up the transition zone from the peripheral zone, for example. And so the result is this convectively delivered, targeted and precise dose of thermal energy. You can see here um, a very brief uh, animation that will start uh, demonstrating how the procedure is performed. On the left-hand side, you can see the actual device, uh, which is uh, fits on the sides uh, of a desktop like a printer. It's a single-use handpiece that takes a regular 30-degree uh, optic lens. And essentially what you do is you have this needle which can uh, retract and be injected into the transition zone. And over nine seconds, this steam the in hot water is passed convectively through the tissue and you place a series of these treatments sequentially a centimeter apart to create these overlapping zones of ablation. And what ends up happening is that the tissue will die and be resorbed over a one to three month period. Um, You see here again that this is water vapor, so it undergoes a phase change. uh, As it boils, it goes into gas and it holds the energy and we have what's called this thermal effect on tissue where you mix the 103 degree steam with body temperature prostate and you get that magic number around 70 degrees where you get instant cell death uh, of the prostate tissue. You can see here the convection where it travels evenly through the tissue as opposed to conduction where it's much hotter closer to the heat source and then it dissipates as it gets further away, much like a candle uh, or a flame. This is a, a, just a very nice indication of what you can expect. About one month after the procedure, you'll see a zone of ablation. And after about three months, you'll see it really collapse down. And you'll, you're typically going to see about a 30 to 40% volume reduction. So I'm going to get in now to the pivotal study for Resume, uh, And as uh, uh, Dr. Gilling explained, these pivotal studies are designed to meet FDA criteria. Um, for novel therapies. So this was the resume two pivotal study. The objective was to assess both the safety and efficacy of the resume system with uh, primary endpoints of efficacy and safety as well. This was a level one RCT with two to one randomization between receiving the thermal therapy compared to a control group. The control group in this Uh, study was a rigid cystoscopy. This was performed multi-center throughout the United States uh, with over 197 patients and 136 of them receiving the active arm. Uh, Remember, the main outcomes are these standardized uh, outcomes, like IPSS, quality of life, Qmax, et cetera. And these were men with prostates between 30 to 80 mils with an IPSS score of more than 13. um, And median lobe was importantly not excluded in the study. You can see here on the right side of the p-value, these were very well-balanced groups. This is very important in pivotal studies in terms of age, prostate volume, IPSS, and Qmax as well. So you can see here some of the results. This is uh, two tables. I'll draw your attention to the left. This is IPSS change from baseline. you notice at baseline, the mean IPSS was close to 22 at about three months you'll see uh, almost a maximum reduction in IPSS uh, of about 11 points down to around 10 and a half. And you'll see a very sustained improvement of IPSS uh, over four years. And uh, recently at the AUA or coming up at the AUA, the five-year data will also be presented. And you can see the same is true for QMAX, maximum Euroflowmetry. you'll see an improvement and a fairly sustained um, improvement of the euroflow maximum Uh, over four years. When we look at other outcomes, the AUA symptom score looks at the quality of life at that last question on the IPSS. And you can see here by three months, a significant improvement from patients who are fairly unhappy to those who are fairly happy with their um, outcome, and it is sustained over time. And you can see as well, looking at sexual function at the IIEF, No changes to erectile function and no de novo erectile dysfunction with the resume treatment. Same is true for the ejaculatory dysfunction in this particular clinical trial. There was no significant difference in the MSHQ scores, both in function and bother um, for the resume therapy. Um, Investigators were allowed the option of treating a median lobe or leaving it alone if it was identified. And this graph simply demonstrates that for those men who had the median lobe treated, they had a better outcome. And in fact, those who had a median lobe which was untreated, they were more likely to have return of symptoms and need further um, interventions. Uh, In terms of adverse events, again, for this Resume 2 pivotal study, 57% of men, more than half, reported no adverse events whatsoever. Uh, This was both in treatment and crossover. And those who did experience any adverse events were typically mild to moderate in nature and uh, resolved within three weeks. Typical things would be dysuria, frequency urgency, uh, hematuria, and retention. Again, self-limited to three weeks uh, and fairly mild in nature. The retreatment rates are notable uh, for resume. It has the lowest retreatment rate for the minimally invasive therapies. You can see in the blue a very stable 4.4% surgical retreatment rate at year three year four and as will be presented at this year's AUA 2020 the five-year uh, retreatment rate remains stable at 4.4% for those individuals who did need a retreatment four out of the six were actually those who had the median lobe that was identified but not treated an additional percentage of men will go back onto medication so an overall medicine plus surgery retrievement rate of around uh, just under 10%. This is a look at the mean IPSS change with four different clinical trials overlapping each other, and in a pivotal study, and uh, any uh, randomized controlled trial, reproducibility is very important, as Dr. Gilling showed, uh, and so you can see here uh, about a 50% improvement in symptoms is typically seen by one month, A maximum level of improvement is typically around three, even six months, and it's fairly sustained over time, regardless of the clinical trial. Now, going on to prostate artery embolization, what is the best evidence to date? Remember, this is an interventional radiology technique where injection of a small particle directly into the prostate arteries bilaterally results in devascularization of the hypervascular BPH nodules. It is considered technically challenging with a technical failure rate or unilateral embolization of two to five percent there is a large variation in prostate artery anatomy there is also potential for bowel bladder and penile anastomotic uh, what's called non-targeted embolization and that is uh, a concern Uh, pre-operative ct angiography as well as intraoperative ct uh, improves the accuracy and is important it is notable that there are um, relatively higher rates of radiation in patients receiving PAE. So in terms of prospective randomized studies, there are a few. This is um, a very nice one, which really uh, compares to sham. And a lot of the historical criticisms of PAE is that it didn't have well randomized uh, studies. And so this was actually in European urology this year in 2020, Um, And you can see here, PAE in the dark uh, black lines really do see a reduction uh, in IPSS uh, in prostate volume uh, with really nothing changing significantly with the sham. And of course, what you're seeing here is a crossover design where the sham group ultimately did receive the treatment and they seem to improve. Now, one of the um, notable studies, if we're talking about pivotal studies, uh, was the UK ROPE study. And this was a very nice study because it was a joint between the Society of Interventional Radiology and the Urological Society in Britain. And it was 17 centers where they compared PAE to TURP, and it was a non-inferiority study. And you can see here that the reoperation rate for PAE was 5% before 12 months, and 15% after 12 months for a total reoperation rate uh, of around 20%. Um, and 71% of the cases were, be able, were performed as outpatient or day surgery. And the takeaway is that it really is an advanced embolization technique with a high level of expertise required, and it really should be in centralized experience centers who do offer training. Uh, there are actually only four uh, large scale PAE studies that have more than 50 patients enrolled with more than one year of follow-up, and they're listed here um, in this publication. So not a lot of evidence, um, but certainly in that that does exist, uh, it is fairly good. You do see reduction in IPSS score of around uh, 11 to 15 points, but again, relatively short follow-ups. So uh, last slide here, where does PAE fit? Well, particularly, I think it's good for larger glands greater than 100. those who do not have very large median lobes, you need to have good prostatic a- uh, vessels for access. You cannot have any renal insufficiency due to the contrast. It is a rel- those who have high surgical risk may be good candidates or those who have a concern about ejaculatory dysfunction. Uh, and of course you want to avoid uh, those who have heavy calcification, tortuous vessels or um, other contraindications. So this is just from the AUA guidelines, essentially saying that the PA literature is sparse uh, and that there isn't really a strong recommendation yet for PAE within the urologic community. So with that, I will thank you very much for your attention. And it is a great pleasure to hand over to uh, Dr. Michael Borofsky from the University of uh, Minnesota.
2: Okay, thank you, Dr. Alterman. And uh, thank you to the AUA as well as the entire faculty. Um, I I think this is really an excellent discussion. Um, I will be uh, speaking next on prostate enucleation. If I could just have control of the slides, great. So um, it's quite humbling to be presenting this um, with Dr. Gilling present who has had such a profound um, influence on on the field and the concept of enucleation, but I'll do my best. These are my disclosures. So enucleation is not really a new procedure in the context of some of the other technologies we're talking about. So where does it fit in here? Well, here's a paper that was published in the Journal of Endourology this past year that broke the United States up into hospital referral regions. And each of these dots represents a whole site. Um, up being the most commonly performed enucleation procedure in the States, you can see here that it's not very commonly offered. In fact, about 70% of these hospital referral regions perform less than 10 holmium enucleations a year. So to many people, enucleation is a new technique, and there's a lot of interest. Um, if you look at some of the data from the American College of Surgeons, particularly the NISQIP data, here you can see that um, there are actually more TURPs being performed on an annual basis, for regrowth of adenoma than there are primary enucleations um, on this limited data set here. So perhaps there is a role, um, and perhaps we can consider HOLUP or some of the enucleation procedures, a rather new technology that is not uh, offered as widely as it could be. So I have the uh, immense challenge of trying to summarize many years of enucleation data in just 15 minutes, and I want to just point out that this may not be entirely possible. a nucleation, if you with the fourth of July coming up, if you think of a nucleation as a firework, you know, as a as a concept going up in the air, what we have now is many, many, many different ways to achieve a nucleation. And I think this is really what's most novel or new in the nucleation world, is that we no longer have are defining a nucleation based on a technology, but more based on a technique. And so the term anatomic endoscopic enucleation is really starting to take over. And this is the concept that differentiates an enucleation, which essentially is the entire um, peeling out or removal of the transition zone adenoma from a channel procedure, which is what the majority of BPH treatments really are focused on is is really the, the channel itself. Enucleation procedures offer an objective surgical endpoint by following the capsular planes. And by virtue of the fact that you're following an anatomic distribution, they can be independent of prostate size, whereas some of the channel procedures, as discussed elsewhere, do have size limitations. Ideally, an anatomic endoscopic enucleation should be um, essentially an endoscopic simple prostatectomy. So over the next 10 minutes, I'll talk about some of the advantages of enucleation, some of the laser techniques, as well as the available data, and also some of the electrocautery techniques to achieve enucleation with some of the data presented as well so first off why bother learning how to enucleate well i would point to the aua guidelines um, for bph surgery published two years ago terp is still the dominant surgery performed for treatment of bph and is only really approved or recommended for smaller average sized prostates Enucleation, in this case, holmium laser or thulium laser nucleation, is uh, recommended as an appropriate treatment choice for really any size prostate. It's called out by the AUA as being size independent. Now, bipolar enucleation is not necessarily uh, discussed in the AUA guidelines, but is um, mentioned in the EAU guidelines, which were updated earlier this past year. And the EAU guidelines uh, include enucleation as um, an alternative uh, to open prostatectomy, here saying that endoscopic enucleation of the prostate achieves similar short and midterm efficacy to an open prostatectomy, has a more favorable perioperative safety profile, and is uh, equally um, appropriate for consideration uh, relative to open prostatectomy. And if you need some proof as to why a nucleation, um, as, as to how a nucleation Um, differs as far as uh, complete removal of the transition zone adenoma. Here's a nice table from Dr. Herman in a a paper published um, on enucleation procedures earlier this past year where you can see that the PSA reduction relative to the technique, it doesn't really matter what technique is chosen, the PSA reduction after a properly done enucleation is profound often on the order of 80 to 90 percent. So again, why bother learning how to enucleate? Well, Removing all of this transition zone adenoma can be um, can offer some unique advantages, in particular for patients who are in urinary retention, where uh, catheter free rates after enucleation have been found to be close to 100%. Um, there's also some evidence from Dr. Krambeck, when um, she was at the Mayo Clinic, showing that there's efficacy in uh, offering this therapy to men who have underactive bladders or even atonic bladders. In this paper uh, published in the Journal of Urology a few years ago, um, sorry, in the Gold Journal a few years ago, um, 19 men with retention and atonic bladders were actually um, studied and and the majority, 95%, were able to void after enucleation with uh, 80% of them showing some return of uh, urodynamic proven detrusor function. Lastly, um, because a nucleation is a bit older, we do have more robust long-term follow-up data. Um, now there are some challenges in maintaining you know an appropriate database for long-term management, but in one of the best studies that we have from, doc- from the late Dr. El Halali um, in Montreal, we have uh reports from earlier this past year. Of 132 patients who were over 10 years out from a holmium enucleation. And what you can see in this table below is that the PSA reduction is maintained, IPSS improvement is maintained. Patients had favorable improvements in quality of life, QMAX, and postvoid residual. And this is an image from one of the patients um, over 10 years out from an enucleation. You can see there's really no return or regrowth of any substantial adenoma. We'll start by talking about holmium laser enucleation. So here's an image or a video of a holmium laser enucleation in action. You can see development of the capsular plane. holmium laser is a pulsed laser. Um, that can be an advantage in the sense that that pulse of the laser can help open up and, and stay within the uh, capsular plane when you do identify it. The holmium laser is also very versatile in the sense that if you have concomitant bladder stones or upper tract stones, you can use the same laser the same system to treat those stones, and it's the most well-studied of all of the enucleation techniques. Some of the potential disadvantages um, are a known steep learning curve for this uh, approach, and suboptimal tissue ablation, if you are just trying to ablate some residual adenoma or tissue itself. Uh, Again, I'd point to Dr. Gillings' excellent work. Um, This is the Pivotal trial for a holmium laser enucleation published in 1999 in the Journal of Urology. In the paper, uh, urodynamically obstructed patients with prostates less than 100 grams were randomized uh, one-to-one to to either undergo transurethral resection of the prostate or holmium laser enucleation or at the time, resection. Uh, The findings um, were that patients ended up with equivalent functional outcomes as determined by IPSS quality of life PVR Qmax and Neurodynamics, TERP was favorable for operative time and was generally faster, but holmium laser resection was favorable for everything else, including a lesser catheterization time, a lesser hospital stay, and fewer complications, in particular bleeding. In the years since, there have been quite a number of publications um, on holmium laser enucleation relative to TERP. In fact, there have been 11 uh, randomized control trials. In a systematic review published last year in the Gold Journal, there were um, 672 patients undergoing Up compared to 667 undergoing TERP. These were men with prostate volumes less than 100 grams in size. And the meta-analysis finding, uh, were somewhat, findings were somewhat similar in the sense that TERP was favored uh, really, again, only for operative time otherwise holop was favored for hospital recovery and complications as defined by a shorter hospital stay a lesser catheterization time a lesser duration of the need for cbi and fewer blood transfusions holop was also favored for voiding parameters measured objectively by a 1 or 2 year qmax and a 6 and 12 month pvr and there was at least equivalence and comparable short-term symptom improvements relative to IPSS at 12 and 24 months, as well as quality of life, and I'm sorry that this was up to 24 months, but it's, not, it's kind of cut off at the bottom here. Notably, one concern that comes up frequently with um, holmium laser nucleation is this concern for um, incontinence, whether it be transient or persistent, because of um, an increased resection um, footprint, as well as the potential for some sphincter ma- uh, manipulation. This uh, review or this meta-analysis did not find any difference between transient incontinence or persistent incontinence between the two approaches. I'd like to spend a little time also talking about bipolar nucleation, which is a newer approach um, and seems to be having uh, somewhat of a resurgence or, or a progression as far as popularity. Um, bipolar nucleation essentially is a similar um, Technique in the in the sense that you're going after the same um, uh, planes to remove the adenoma, but using a bipolar instrument to achieve this. Some of the advantages of a bipolar nucleation approach is that it is a more familiar tool to many um, urologists, and there's the ability to shift between trying to stay within the plane as well as resect some tissue potentially if using the appropriate um, working instrument. There's a cost potential advantage too, in the sense that uh, many people already own a bipolar system. Some of the disadvantages is that uh, these working elements can have a larger footprint, potentially leading to less precision, as far whether it be staying within the capsular plane or um, um, developing the planes, um, particularly around the apex. And here's a little video from a colleague, Dr. Jonathan Warner from California. um, And you can see that in this case, a loop is being used to both kind of find the capsular plane, and then mechanically and bluntly dissect the adenoma off of the capsule. And in this sense, this is very similar to some parts of a homium enucleation or a thulium nucleation. What do we know about bipolar enucleation? Um, well, before we get there, there are a couple of different uh, working elements that I was mentioning. Um, and some of, the, some of the probes include a, um, rubber uh, or a um, non-electrical component specifically designed for the purpose of blunt dissection and peeling off um, the the adenoma from the capsule. And other probes really are more focused on um, just a more precise or a finer footprint with um, the bipolar probe. The pivotal trial in a sense here um, was published uh, in 2006. Um, and it was with a plasmic kinetic enucle- enucleation system versus HOLIP. Uh, this was a prospective RCT with 20 patients in each cohort. And in this case, trust volumes were much uh, more widely variable, uh, with men having prostates between 20 and 200 grams in size. Um, notably, the findings from this study were equivalent functional outcomes relative to um, IPSS, Qmax, um, the amount of tissue removed, the postoperative truss volume, as well as urodynamic findings. In this case, HOLUP was favored for operative time and was found to be slightly shorter, and also had a slight a, a decreased um, uh, need for postoperative bladder irrigation. Um, and this idea of uh, an improved bleeding profile for some of the laser nucleation approaches has bared out in some of the other RCTs compared to bipolar. Um, we recently um, had a uh, meta-analysis performed um, for bipolar enucleation versus bipolar um, resection uh, that summarized a number of studies, including five RCTs that, can, that had 748 patients enrolled. Findings here, again, favored enucleation, uh, which was found to have a greater amount of resected tissue relative to TURP. There was a lesser duration of bladder irrigation time, a shorter hospital stay, and a lesser duration of requiring a catheter measured on days. Bipolar enucleation was also favored for bleeding, and patients in the bipolar uh, cohort had a smaller hemoglobin drop and also were less likely to require a blood transfusion. And again, this is relative to a bipolar TURP. It does bear mention that there are other laser techniques. Um, unfortunately, I don't have quite enough time to get into these, but the, the thulium laser, a thulium laser is another um, laser that has been well studied and shown to have excellent efficacy um, for achieving a nucleation. Some of the potential advantages of a thulium laser is that it is a continuous wave laser, so it cuts through the tissue rather precisely um, rather than having that pulsed effect that you can see with, with the hole up. Um, There is robust data, again, and and I would bear in mind that there are different ways to use the thulium laser. In some cases, a thuvep or a thulium um, vapor enucleation really is more of a cutting procedure where you use the laser to cut out the obstructing adenoma versus a thulep, which is um, a type of procedure where you actually incise into the surgical plane and use more blunt dissection in the more classic um, approach. And the thulium laser has been shown to be quite hemostatic. Um, and is again supported by the AUA guidelines as an appropriate choice for medically complex patients at higher risk of bleeding. Some of the disadvantages of a thulium laser is potentially in the versatility, as this previously has not been demonstrated to be capable of uh, treating stones. Though, so with the recently um, introduced new thulium fiber laser, this um, may be something worth revisiting. Lastly, there is um, an evolving interest in using a green light laser for enucleation purposes. Some of the advantages of using a green light would be that the green light is known to be quite hemostatic. It is um, excellent and very efficient at tissue ablation. So in cases where perhaps um, finding the plane was difficult, the potential to switch to an ablation um, would be well supported by this technology. And there's also a thicker fiber that would potentially allow for uh, some blunt dissection with the fiber itself. Some of the disadvantages might be in deeper laser penetration, an increased cost of this uh, laser fiber in general, and again a lack of versatility with an inability to treat uh, bladder or upper tract stones. There's also limited data, as this has probably been most uh, recently described technique to use a laser for nucleation purposes. And I'm unaware of any RCTs uh, using this approach relative to um, a TURP or other um, comparable treatments. So I know that was a lot to cover. Um, there are probably many other uh, good questions and good ideas that come from this and I'd be happy to answer them later in our Q&A session. Um, again, think of a nucleation in these days more as a, as a technique, not necessarily as a singular tool. Um, think of nucleation as a more versatile and potentially definitive um, approach to a nucleation into prostate treatment um, where the potential benefit is mostly, is particularly realized in men with the largest prostates um, and think of lasers when uh, concerned about bleeding. With that being said, I'm happy to pass the torch to uh, Dr. Gilling. Thank you, Dr. Gilling. We look forward to your uh, coming talk. Yeah, great. Uh,
1: thank you, Michael. That's uh, uh, an excellent overview of a rather difficult and uh, patchy subject I'm just waiting for the uh, controls to come my way and then I'll start on the pivotal trial for aquablation I suppose things are traveling from the speed of light halfway around the world so some delays can be expected so the three-year results for the aquablation pivotal study were due to be presented in Washington, so I have them here for you as, uh, and they were the subject of a podium presentation. Uh, but the aquablation pivotal trial uh, very much followed the same sort of um, scheme as Dean mentioned for resume. The trial itself was a, a multi-center. Multinational trial, which, uh, if I could show the first slide, it's very slow, very long delay. Yes, thanks. Um, so um, the, it was a multi-center multinational trial, but it followed the same sort of schema, and we'll talk about the uh, the use of the TURP control shortly. Aquablation, for those who haven't uh, seen it in operation, uh, uses robotic assisted technology. It really takes the surgeon out of the game in some ways, but the surgeon is very important in terms of determining the area to be treated, the area to be ablated. It's a semi-automated technique and we use a very familiar touch screen interface uh, and the surgeon delivers the accurate conformal treatment uh, with the marrying up of the uh, technology with the robotic assisted arm. The tissue is removed uh, acutely, much like uh, TURP, but very rapidly by the water jet, as we'll see when, once we get into the, uh, uh, the uh, trial itself. And it's heat free, the water jet is generally um, room temperature saline. happen. Uh, very good so 275 men were screened in the pivotal trial and as you can see the details for those men are much the same as the uh, patient cohort that were treated in the, in the pivotal trial that uh, uh, Dean presented up to 80 years of age up to 80 grams in size uh, a, a an intra-recycle median lobe was uh, permitted and the IPSS score and QMAX values um, will be common across all of these pivotal trials and with standard exclusions. So of those 275 men, 181 uh, were blinded and randomized and that two to one uh, benefit, which allows, which uh, encourages uh, recruitment does nothing really for the statistics of the matter uh, was employed and the standard follow-ups one week, three months, six months, and now annually, and that will be going on for five years. Importantly, there were no uh, losses of patients out to the six month mark, was which was where the might have to get you to afford that. I don't seem to be having have control of the uh, forward button. Next slide. we can see at 6 months well only one patient withdrew across both arms so that uh, enabled the, um, uh, the the primary uh, endpoints to the uh, uh, to be met which were at 3 months and 6 months uh, next slide please so the two primary endpoints were there was a 3 month safety endpoint and a 6 month efficacy endpoint The safety endpoint was a combination of uh, grade one, persistent grade one plus grade two or higher and lumped together to give uh, an overall safety endpoint. And this was agreed with uh, the FDA. The grade one uh, endpoints uh, complications, as you recall, uh, persistent erectile dysfunction, ejaculatory dysfunction and uh, incontinence. So persistent grade one or grade two and above combined. And non-inferiority was tested with a 10% margin. And then if non-inferiority was met, superiority was tested for both. So the six month uh, efficacy uh, endpoint was the change in IPSS at six months, uh, which is common to all these techniques. And non-inferiority was tested with an agreed 4.7 point uh, margin. Uh, Next slide, please. We can see at baseline, the uh, demographics were well matched between uh, the two groups, as you would expect with the randomization and with the relatively large numbers uh, involved. About uh, half of the patients had median lobes and the prostates were in that 50 to 55 cc range on average. We can see from the operative uh, characteristics that there was no real difference between operative time and length of stay, but there was a big difference in terms of the tissue removal time or the so-called resection time, four minutes versus 28 minutes, which just shows you how quickly the robotic uh, assisted uh, uh, tissue uh, ablation is. The rest of the time is taken up, of course, with setup and calibration, and then uh, hemostasis, which was done by a variety of techniques. Next slide, please. So here's a summary of the the safety endpoint. So when you combine those two, you got you 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 got 42% for TURP versus 26%. But when you separate them out, you can see that there was no difference in the CD2 or greater. Uh, effects and it was it all came down to the CD, persistent uh, CD1 uh, effects 24% versus 6.9%. And if we look at the right hand table there, we can see that this is entirely due to a difference in retrograde ejaculation being 36% in the TURP arm versus 10% in the aquablation arm with no differences seen in incontinence or erectile dysfunction. Next slide, please. The three year uh, efficacy we can see here. Uh, the IPSS change was the, uh, was the six month, at six months was the primary endpoint for uh, FDA purposes, but we can see it's been carried on out to 36 months, and there's still at 36 months no difference between TURP and aquablation. So it was felt that aquablation was non inferior to TURP on this basis. If we look at the change in quality of life score, we can also see the same sort of effects uh, and this is maintained out to 36 months as well. Next slide, please. Looking at the subgroup, this is a pre-specified analysis, the, the subgroup over 50 cc's, looking at these out to three years there did seem to be a difference, a statistically significant difference in the the IPSS uh, change score between the two treatments uh, and the conclusion could be reached. For some reason, there was superior symptom improvement uh, in the larger prostates when treated by aquablation. Next slide, please. Now here's the flow data. We can see that this is uh, maintained out to 36 months and uh, aquablation and TORP experience the sorts of flows that you would expect uh, for tissue-resective uh, techniques. Also for post-board residual, we can see a, uh, a rapid fall and a sustained uh, decrease in the post-board residual and there's no significant difference between the two technologies out to uh, three years next slide please PSA reduction was similar in the two arms and uh, retreatment rates were also not statistically significantly different between the two technologies out to 36 months uh, and with a low average yearly retreatment rate of around 1.4 percent per year in, in both groups that's the aquablation data next slide please so we've seen low retreatment treatment uh, rates in both arms consistent flow improvement out 36 months and um, the real advantage for aquablation I think is the lack of a learning curve because uh, most of the most of the sites that uh, enrolled patients into this pivotal trial had not had previous acquisition experience, though there was um, an allowance for up to two cases uh, to roll into the study, but this was not um, utilized for most sites. So it does really, it's it's almost operator independent. So it's interesting in that regard. It is quite a complex procedure and does often require engineering assistance for the first few cases, but um, it does uh, seem to achieve everything that we uh, expect from uh, TURP, with the lower rates of retrograde ejaculation. Next slide, please. So I'd like to talk um, briefly about some of the stents which are being investigated currently. I mean, stents, when I started in this area, I suppose in the 90s, there was a range of stents. There was the Euroloom stent, uh, the MemoCath, the Titan uh, with Boston, and there were some biodegradable stents that were employed. Uh, poly uh, lactic acid and glycolic acid. And then there was the temporary stents, such as the Spanish stent, Conti-Cath, and uh, there was one other, the Prostacoil. So there was a range of stents, but they sort of went out of fashion for a while. But with the success of the EuroLift device, they seem to have come back into uh, uh, contention, if you like. And I'd like to present just uh, some of the early data because that's all we have on some of the newer stents next slide please thank you Um, the first one is the temporary implantable nitinol device the so-called tinned device these have these three nitinol uh, pressure uh, struts and an anchoring leaflet to keep it in place Um, as you can see the operating room time is only five minutes Uh, and it can be withdrawn in the office through a a special catheter or through a a rigid cystoscope if necessary. But the thing only stays in for five days and it causes pressure necrosis at the bladder neck and leads to, if you like, three bladder neck uh, incisions. It's best suited to small prostates with no median lobe, prostates under 60 grams ideally. The procedure itself, as as we see here, and these are some company slides which just show the before and after shot. But the fact that the device is removed is very attractive to patients and um, we get requests for this, although we've never been involved in any of the trials. The three-year data from the initial trial has been published, this was a couple of years ago, and a lot of this comes uh, from Turin. And we can see in, on the bottom right hand slide that the IPSS score does look like with this early device as as though it does increase slightly as time goes on. There have been changes to that device and um, the second generation device and with the one year data that's been published recently uh, on 81 patients shows uh, uh, an improving flow rate and uh, we see the IPSS score out to 12 months and uh, it potentially may be more durable. This is a company slide showing the clinical st- studies which are current and ongoing. Uh, we, we can see that there is an FD, FDA uh, pivotal trial underway randomising 185 patients and we um, We look forward to the one year data from that, which apparently is uh, due to be published in quarter three of 2020. But we can see see the differences in IPSS and flow rates in the bottom uh, slides, and we can see that uh, the IPSS is fairly uh, consistent across the different devices, but the flow rate uh, does appear to differ in different studies. We'll see what the um, definitive uh, pivotal trial shows us. But they expect to see a reduction in ipss consistently of between 10 and 12 points durable out to three years and a flow rate which is uh, um, in the four to eight mils range with a low intervention rate and we can see the adverse events here on the right and mild hematuria dysuria as expected uh, all i understand to be self-limiting the ZenFlow spring system uh, involves a, a, a number of concentric uh, struts, if you like, which are uh, in a single stent, which uncoils within the prostate. Uh, it's a low-profile nitinol implant. It's done through a bespoke flexible cystoscope, which is uh, comes with a kit, and it's designed to be permanent, but um, uh, can be removed uh, if needs be, if if, if there's a, if any migration takes place. Um, these have been trialed out to three years and, uh, with low adverse event rates. It's data poor at present, but uh, there are uh, two studies that have been ongoing which uh, expect to report uh, substantially soon. Uh, the ZEST EU study, uh, myself and Henry uh, been involved in, in, in that one. I think uh, Henry was involved in the ZEST 2 study as well. And, you, and it's the same patient range, Prostates 25 to 80 cc's, IPSS scores 13 or greater uh, and flow rates less than 15 mils per second. I have a solitary uh, data slide here, looking at 48 patients, 32 have been followed up to 12 months and we can see the IPSS outcomes here. Uh, Another device, uh, and this is uh, the last of the ones that I'll present, Uh, Is the ProArc medical ring and this is the so-called clear ring this is uh, an animation which uh, gives you an idea of how this um, procedure is performed the first in human data was reported in uh, I think EU focus and uh, they do have early data up to three years and it is a submucosal uh, nitinol uh, pre-shaped implant and uh, as you can see it expands and then um, is implanted um, beneath the mucosa the idea being that this uh, will preserve sexual function and will be easy to use and apparently is fully uh, reversible and removable the clinical pilot study is uh, soon to be up and running and uh, uh, we will possibly be one of the sites that will be involved so it'll be quite interesting to see uh, how the uh, device performs this was what was presented in EU focus uh, 17 patients um, the claims regarding reduction in symptoms and um, Relief of retention, uh, with no sexual uh, effect on, no sexual side effects, with no retrograded ejaculation and ability to remove the implant are important features. So this is one of, I believe, as many as ten different stents which are currently being employed. So on that note, I'll pass over to Henry, who will um, talk to us about the uh, Urolift device and the pivotal trial uh, for that. Uh, Uh, For that device, uh, primarily. Thanks, Henry.
3: Thank you, Peter, and I bring you greetings from uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, My uh, disclosures are uh, listed on the AUA website, and uh, uh, the most relevant disclosure for the purpose of this presentation is the fact that I am a a consultant uh, and lecturer for uh, uh, Teleflex, who are the manufacturers of the Eurolift device. just see if I've got control of this okay it's just one okay we seem to be um, up and going all right Um, first of all we'll talk about uh, ejaculatory dysfunction it's well established that there is a link between lower urinary tract symptoms and BPH and within this link there is actually a uh, a link between uh, ejaculatory dysfunction as well Now when we talk about ejaculatory dysfunction, it can be in the form of so-called retrograde ejaculation. But I highlight here an ejaculation because it's never actually been proven that retrograde ejaculation exists as an entity. So perhaps an ejaculation, which would cover that term, is a better descriptor. We can also talk about the decreased force of ejaculation and also pain upon ejaculation. What about the community prevalence of um, ejaculatory dysfunction? Um, There have been a number of studies which have uh, shown uh, that it's very prevalent. And I think that in particular, I'll draw draw your attention to the study by Rosen, uh, where uh, you could see that uh, with increasing age, that the prevalence is quite high. And certainly once you get into your 70s and 80s, um, you can see as much as three quarters of men have some degree of ejaculatory dysfunction. And when we look at the um, prevalence of, ej- of ejaculatory dysfunction uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, you can see that it actually gets worse. And this is a similar sort of thing that we've uh, that we've been aware with um, regard to uh, uh, erectile dysfunction. What about ej- ejaculatory dysfunction following cavitating BPH surgery? Um, a systematic review uh, examining this for TURP found that the uh, rate was around 66%. But when we look at high quality, randomised controlled trials, for example, with HOLLEP, you can see that it's fairly, uh, that it's uh, in that sort of ballpark. And a similar uh, sort of rate was seen uh, in the Goliath study, which compared green light laser to TURP. We just have a slight uh, lag um, with, with the signals for the uh, controlling the PowerPoint slides uh, coming all the way to Sydney, Australia. Um, so i show you this study here, which uh, looks at uh, minimally invasive TURP um, in a, a youngish group, um, which really challenges the whole issue as to whether the bladder neck, how important the bladder neck is in terms of... Uh, uh, Creating uh, ejaculatory dysfunction if we were to incise or resect it. And what you can see here is that uh, uh, in this very small study from 2013, um, just a uh, small amount of resection of the bladder neck at six o'clock and twelve o'clock led to preservation of uh, of uh, sexual function uh, without uh, any uh, uh, diminution or or without any diminution to the results in with regard to improvement in uh, urinary function and here's an image of uh, uh, what it looks like when uh, one performs a so-called ejaculatory sparing cavitating procedure you preserve the, try to preserve the tissue that's around the vira montana and uh, there've been a number of studies which seem to suggest that uh, this preserves uh, ejaculatory dysfunction in spite of the blood neck being uh, wide open Now, does ejaculatory function matter? Do men actually really care? When we look at uh, the effects of sildenafil on ejaculatory dysfunction, we're all we're all aware that uh, the prevalence of this is, is can be quite high. But the interesting thing is that only seven percent of men in um, in a real life study um, actually discontinued their sildenafil because of an ejaculation. But also the devil's of course in the detail. You need to consider the fact that many of these men um, were uh, older men. In uh, some of the Arphusisone studies and uh, so studies uh, it uh, uh, demonstrated that men with uh, LUTs were, um, uh, had a very high prevalence of uh, uh, ejaculatory dysfunction. And um, again, in similar to the uh, study by Rosen, you can see that uh, ejaculatory dysfunction was considered a problem uh, depending on uh, the, uh, du- the severity of uh, LUTs. So is this a, this is, so the whole uh, issue of ejaculatory dysfunction is uh, frequently used by minimally invasive uh, surgical uh, therapy type companies as an advantage as to why we should use their product. And so we have to ask the question, is this simply a manufactured problem by the uh, company or is it a genuine problem? We also have to consider the cultural issues and uh, uh, personal material concerns of the patients. Uh, But what we do know is that certainly ejaculatory dysfunction should be discussed with BPH-related treatment as part of setting the patient expectations. And for those who are desiring preservation of ejaculatory function may need to consider um, some uh, trade-offs with regard to durability of procedures. So with the uh, ejaculatory dysfunction issue, you could say that the foundations have certainly been laid down by the uh, mist industry. But it's interesting to also see that there's been a reaction by non mist surgeons with the development of ejaculatory modifications of cavitating surgery so it's important to bear in mind that when ejaculatory sparing procedures are available it creates patient expectation that it be offered and it's human nature not to desire giving up something permanently so we wrote um, an article about uh, our thoughts on ejaculatory dysfunction in the BJUI and uh, the takeaway um, sentence that I'd like to leave you with um, is that the phase retrograde ejaculation should be struck from the urological lexicon unless there is, significant, unless there is proof of significant numbers of sperms in a post orgasmic uh, urine sample. But for now, I think that uh, ejaculatory dysfunction is very much part of our routine discussion with any uh, type of BPH treatment. We'll now move on to talking about uh, the EuroLift. I think that uh, the vast majority of this audience are going to be very familiar uh, with this uh, technology. You have this um, delivery device or handpiece which accommodates uh, an endoscope and it delivers um, an implant that looks like this. And if you look at this uh, graphic here, you can see how um, a hollow needle is deployed, which goes out through the uh, uh, prostate capsule, and uh, then a um, then the external uh, tab of the prosthesis is then positioned, and then uh, with retraction and tensioning of the uh, suture, permanent suture, uh, a second and uh, second um, uh, internal tab is placed, and uh, this, uh, the effect of this is to, is a mechanical Uh, extraction of the urethra and this is what it looks like endoscopically and this is sort of the end result you see this uh, uh, see the uh, prostatic urethelium pulled uh, uh, laterally and uh, the uh, pressure necrosis leads to bearing of the internal tab um, beneath the urethelium so that it's not so that it's not exposed to the uh, uh, urinary environment. Let's talk about the pivotal studies. Uh, there are two pivotal studies, which are the Lift study, which is a uroLift versus sham um, randomised controlled trial, and the BPH6 study, which is the uroLift versus TURP. Now, with the LIFT study, you'll see that uh, this uh, design uh, schema um, is uh, similar to uh, that used for the aquablation and resume. Um, there was uh, this is a um, multi-center international study. Uh, the allocation was two to one, and uh, Urolift compared to a sham procedure. And the primary objective of this study was to observe a 25% improvement in urine symptom scores at three months. And uh, this is the uh, is, uh, explains the uh, um, how the study was conducted, and again, it's very similar to uh, how um, what was seen in previous presentations uh, with regard to uh, uh, the pivotal studies for aquablation and resume. So at the three month mark. Um, Uh, Patients were unblinded and uh, we saw quite significant improvements in, uh, for example, on the left-hand side here, you can see how the baseline IPSS for those having the EuroLeft device improved from 22 down to 11.2. However, for the sham study, sham component, uh, the baseline IPSS was 24, which only came down to 18.5. So you can see that's uh, obviously a very um, significant statistically and clinically significant uh, difference. When we look at the uh, flow, uh, flow rates, uh, the baseline was 8.2 for the Eurolift uh, uh, side of the study and this improved to 12.29. Whereas with the uh, uh, sham group, it went from 7.9 up to 9.9. Um, the quality of life index, um, uh, improved from 4.6 at baseline for the Urolift group down to 2.4. However, we don't see that quite um, so much of an improvement where it goes down from 4.7 to only 3.6 in the, um, uh, in the sham group. So whilst that was of statistical significance, it's certainly not of any clinical significance. Now what after the um, uh, three month, um, uh, after three months, patients then entered into a longer term follow-up uh, uh, part of the study. And then uh, the one year through to, the five year follow-up have been published on an annual basis, and I'm going to focus most of the uh, next few slides on the results of five years. Now the key parameters are for example with the, the improvement in uh, uh, the IPSS and what you can see is that uh, there's a fairly rapid fall in the IPSS and this is well sustained right through to five years. Um, a similar thing is observed with the BPH, BPH impact index which is more of a, uh, an academic uh, uh, measurement um, instrument and, it's, and it mirrors the IPSS improvements. As for quality life index, likewise, you see, there's a very rapid uh, improvement in quality life, which is then sustained right out through to five years. With the the changes in flow rate, um, there is certainly an improvement, and uh, this is uh, reasonably well sustained out to five years, but um, it's it's more modest compared to uh, uh, cavitating types of procedures. But the thing that people people really want to know when it comes to um, looking at these devices is the um, retreatment rate. What is it? And the retreatment rate over five years was 13.6%, which is certainly higher than what you'd expect for a cavitating type of procedure. Now. Within the LIFT study, there was also a very detailed analysis of sexual function. And I'd like to um, uh, take you back in time and uh, to look at the the Rosen study that was published almost 20 years ago. And this was the, um, uh, you could say the pivotal study that uh, demonstrated that uh, as you're uh, with increasing age, your um, sexual function declines. And also when you look at uh, the severity of LUTs within each of these groups, you can see that uh, uh, function also declines. So when we think about that, it uh, almost uh, begs to uh, suggest that if one can improve a man's low and tract symptoms with a treatment that does not negatively affect sexual function, theoretically, the sexual function may be able to be improved. So, in this particular study, what we have actually demonstrated um, in the LIFT study is that there is uh, no sustained de novo ejaculated dysfunction and normal erectile function was seen from baseline. So normal erectile function at baseline demonstrated absolutely no change. And the other thing, which is is the fact that when we look at severe uh, erectile dysfunction, it actually led to improvement, which was, a, uh, which was um, I guess, initially a surprise but then when we consider the Rosen and data uh, not so surprising after all. Um, with specific attention to ejaculatory dysfunction with the lift study um, I'll draw the details on the, uh, on the in the tables on the right but I'll draw your, your attention to the uh, um text on the left. Again, no de novo sustained ejaculatory dysfunction. And the interesting thing is the intensity and volume of the ejaculate improved by 20%, and bobber scores related to ejaculatory dysfunction improved by 30%. All right, we'll move on to the BPH uh, 6 study, which was conducted over multiple sites in Europe. And this was a randomised controlled trial comparing uh, the Urolift to TURP. And it has uh, quite a novel uh, study design. And instead of the usual um, uh, outcome measures, what it looked at were, were um, elements that were considered to be uh, important to the patient. So you'll notice the absence of uh, improvement of flow study. And it covered uh, lower tract symptom relief, the recovery experience, uh, changes to sexual function would be erectile or ejaculatory uh, function, continence preservation, and safety. So when we look at the the quality of recovery uh, compared to TURP, in the blue line here is the Eurolift, and in the TURP is uh, is in the uh, with the orange line here. And what you can see is that. Uh, I guess what this graph shows is that the um, quality of recovery or the experience to the patient is much kinder with the Urolift compared to the TURP. Not surprisingly, when you um, get out to about a year down the track, um, I guess the patients have largely forgotten the whole experience and they feel fairly happy either way. And when we look at uh, the improvement in IPSS, um, the, um, it's not surprising that the TURP has um, a, a slightly better, has a better improvement compared to the, the Urolift and uh, that's what one would anticipate with a cavitating type of procedure versus a minimum invasive therapy. The quality of life improvements were very similar. Um, after 12 months, uh, there was absolutely no surprise that the improvement in the urine flow rate was significantly um, superior with uh, TURP compared to um, the Urolift. But uh, bear in mind that uh, the flow rate was not an endpoint for this study. <clears throat> when we look at um, ejaculatory function, there is no uh, significant change over uh, 12 months with um, the Urolift. The interesting thing, the same applies for the TURP, which really challenges uh, the uh, notion that uh, TURP is res- significantly responsible for loss of erectile function. And we see is likewise with, um, well, this is the interesting thing is that with ejaculatory function, if anything at all, it suggests that with the urolift, there is actually a very slight improvement, which uh, is sustained out to 12 months. And with TURP, which um, is well established to cause ejaculatory dysfunction, um, shows no surprise of uh, having sustained diminution of that function right out to 12 months. So what does the BPH6 data show? It shows modest improvements in symptom scores and flow rates compared to sham <clears throat> treatment in randomised controlled trials. Um, the symptom and flow rate improvements appear to be at a level superior to drug treatment or those not being tested head to head. There is no loss of erectile or ejaculatory, dysfunction, ejaculatory function. <coughs> and the Urolift is largely superior to TURP in achieving minimally invasive surgical treatment targets in this particular randomised controlled trial. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd like to draw attention to one other study, which is so-called med lift study, because the presence of a middle lobe has been an exclusion criterion for all of the urolift studies. And it was proposed that perhaps by being able to pin the middle lobe over to one side, that that may uh, deal with the issue of um, uh, the middle lobe being uh, an exclusion criterion uh, for uh, urolift treatment. And this study was published uh, recently and uh, what we've, what's been observed is that there are uh, symptom improvements which are very similar to uh, what, we've, what we have observed in, um, in other Euralift studies. Okay, so the summary of all the data was seen in the pivotal Euralift studies it's, is that there is a sustained symptom and quality of life benefit there's a low incidence of serious adverse events there's no recorded erectile or ejaculatory dysfunction and any disadvantages such as measurable re-treatment rates appear to be an acceptable trade-off for benefits as confirmed uh, in the five-year data. So where does uh, EuroLift fit in? Um, Well the main um, Groups who will seek this type of treatment are going to be men who do not want to take, them, take medications but want some treatment of their uh, low urinary tract symptoms. The men have failed medications but do not want uh, conventional cavitating surgical treatments. And the men for whom set, preservation of sexual function is paramount. However, men must be willing to accept a trade-off with durability. Thank you very much and uh, I hand back to our Chair Peter Gilling to uh, uh, conduct the question and answer session.
1: Great, Uh, thanks Henry. We have a number of questions um, and I would say the first one um, goes to Dean. And is there a role for resume in prostate cancer? And that's from Ahmed.
0: It's a great question about the role for prostate cancer. So currently, according to the labeling, it's approved for the treatment of lower urinary tract symptoms secondary to BPH. Um, It's not necessarily contraindicated in prostate cancer, but it's really not designed uh, to treat prostate cancer. Certainly, if you have um, a lesion in the transition zone, and you're able to subsequently do a follow-up MRI or targeted biopsy, it might hit the lesion, but again, I would not recommend Resume as a primary treatment for prostate cancer. It is not indicated, and there is no evidence to support its use. Interestingly, the technology does have a spin-off company currently investigating the application of convective water vapor for the treatment of BPH, but, but you'll have to stay tuned for that as it's in very early phases of investigation at this point. For the treatment of prostate cancer? For prostate cancer, yes. Yeah, yeah good.
1: Uh, excellent. So, Henry, what, what is the best method to treat those who want to preserve their sexual ability? And that's from NYMEG.
3: Yes, look, I think that what we're seeing, I, I think it's very difficult to say that, argue that one um, particular method is superior to any other method. Um, because we're observing that there are quite a number of minimally invasive surgical treatments that uh, can preserve both um, erectile and ejaculatory um, ejaculatory function. So what I think we need to do, say is that there are there is a suite of treatments that are available, FDA approved treatments that are available, and uh, I think it'll it'll largely come down to the individual preferences of the uh, treating urologist.
1: And what's the feasibility of TERP? after Eurolift
3: placement, that's from uh, Chella. Yeah, um, TURP, it's, it's um, the Eurolift uh, really makes uh, very little difference to uh, um, to your ability to perform a TURP subsequently. The TURP loop is just going to slice through the suture, which will then retract backwards. And um, it, in fact, uh, uh, some surgeons may, then, may not even realise they've uh, operated on a patient who's had a, uh, urolift uh, previously. The only thing with uh, laser technology is that you just need to uh, avoid uh, directing the laser beam onto the internal metal tab and if you do that uh, it's again uh, the procedure is no different to uh, um, how you perform it in a patient who hadn't undergone a urolift in the past.
1: Right I've got a few uh, nucleation questions here for you uh, Mike. Um, First of all, are you using a morselator to remove uh, the specimen? Um, Sandeep finds it uh, difficult to get hospitals to get this equipment.
2: Yeah, um, it goes without saying that a, a large gland is best uh, suited for removal with a morselator. Um, morselation is not as much the controversial or technical. Um, Performance part of of a whole, but I do think is a very practical economic one, and I think getting your hospital to invest in a morselator, you have to have some um, realistic expectations for making the move towards a nucleation and committing to it. Uh, I think it is a bit common for people to start venturing towards a nucleation and buy all this equipment, and unfortunately, you do hear of people who abandon it. So I, I would I would. Talk to the hospital purchasing committee and really move towards you know a full commitment with equal stakeholder shareholding and stakeholding between the surgeon and the hospital. If if really considering morselation, it's very challenging to um, offer a nucleation the way it's intended without a morselator, in my opinion.
1: Yes, and um, uh, another question from Sandeep is uh, Holet versus thulet what's
2: your preference and why admittedly I'm a whole- I'm a up enthusiast but it's the technique that I learned and trained on um, for my own preference is I do like a pulsed laser because I do very much believe that it helps uh, maintain the surgical capsular plane um, and often you know don't use the laser energy on the tissue at all when developing the plane rather use it using just the pulse of the holmium fiber to Develop and, and and nucleate, so to speak. The thulium requires a more contact-oriented um, approach, and, and does tend to leave a little bit more char behind, which, based on my impression, could potentially obscure the planes a bit more. But but there's very robust and very good data showing that each is a appropriate and uh, suitable laser for nucleation.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've tried both, and. Uh, yeah, for me, the whole, whole immune is significantly superior, but um, people do make the thulium work. But as we showed with that uh, 2006 study with a bare coil, you can enucleate with pretty much anything if uh, if you know how to do the procedure. Question for you, uh, Dean. Now, you were involved in the WATER2 study, were you, for aquablation? Were you one of yes. the sites for that? You were? Yes, exactly. There were no transfusions, I don't think in, uh, in the uh, FDA study, but the question from Howard is, what's the incidence of transfusion after ablation? And uh, that's really the only trial I'm aware of that has uh, a, tra- a transfusion rate, which I yeah, believe yeah, is around 10%. No, the, um,
0: the, the transfusion rate has varied, and the technique has also varied for hemostasis as ablation has evolved. And you have to remember that In the water one study, the glands were 30 to 80. The water two study was 80 to 150, and there was no electrocautery uh, allowed. And in fact, the whole study was designed around having a large catheter uh, balloon with traction. And we found that um, the rates of transfusion were higher, particularly as the prostate gland got bigger. Subsequent to this, the, the technique has actually changed where you actually will use uh, electrocautery to clear off some of the fluffy tissue at the bladder neck and just do spot focal cautery. And that has significantly reduced the transfusion rate. So we actually published uh, in the British Journal of Urology just a few months ago, a multicenter look at all of the transfusion rates. uh, And it's now just around 2% or lower um, amongst all aquablation pooled. uh, And then certainly the newer technique that we've now described Uh, It's not yet published, but that procedure uh, transfusion rate is now down to 0.5%. So that will be coming out as well. So with everything, there's been an evolution, both in the uh, approach and the technique. And I think there's been refinement for transfusion. And it's very much in line with other now uh, cavitating uh, surgeries like TURP. Oh, good
1: i see we're over time now so um does i'm not sure if this automatically turns off we've got another couple of quick uh questions um if the panelists uh, don't mind staying on for another five minutes
2: sure
1: um michael for you um green light versus holmium um and um alfonso asks which technological option has demonstrated better outcomes green light versus holmium for nucleation?
2: So, you know, I think one thing to be aware of when talking about the green light uh, data is that it is, it's by far the, the newest technique that's been described. It does not have the level of evidence that holop does. And uh, in fact, there, I would argue are, are very few centers that are doing green light nucleation. So some of the data out there, it could be more surgeon-centric than really procedure-centric um mm-hmm. there are cost concerns using a green light laser in fact um you know you would potentially we, we have many cases where you have to treat us a, a bladder stone concomitantly uh while treating a prostate so i think the value of holmium proves itself right there if you can learn it but i would argue that one interesting element of the green light Um, approach is the potential to ablate tissue if you get lost. And I do think there is some potential merit towards somebody who's out in practice learning the technique um, themselves, who has a green light available to them uh, as a way to kind of get started, so to speak, and finding the planes and enucleating and then rapidly transitioning over towards an ablative approach if if they were needed. But a lot more data is necessary to support that.
1: So just quickly on enucleation again, sexual side effects and stretches, they're our last two
2: questions. Um, I generally counsel patients undergoing a nucleation not to expect um, any maintenance of uh, ejaculatory function. The only exception to this would be a patient who has a very prominent uh, intravesical middle lobe um, who I would potentially counsel on just treating the middle lobe alone. There is good data from Dr. Kaplan um, out of New York um, hospital showing that uh, you can preserve ejaculation if you just treat the middle lobe um, and leave the lateral lobes and the tissue around uh, the as Dr. Wu had alluded to, but otherwise tell patients that they're very likely not going to maintain ejaculatory function after a full um, enucleation. Uh, in regards to urethral strictures or bladder neck contractures, I don't generally counsel them different than I would for, any, for a, for a TURP.
1: Great. Right. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to my fellow panelists and for all the attendees. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all in person in Las Vegas next year. Thank you all.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining everyone.